Autism through cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. Please remember, we always love to hear from you, our dear listeners, so send us your thoughts about the films we discuss, or send us your recommendations for films that we should take a look at. Email us on cinemaautism at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome special guest Sam Chown Ahern to the podcast. Sam is a member of the Neurocultures Collective, a team of autistic filmmakers working with our project lead Stephen Eastwood in the creation of a feature film about autism. No doubt we'll tell you much more about this later in the year. For now, Sam joins us to chat about one of her favourite films, a movie about aliens, alienation, and dreams of home. Ouch. Many thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, we are very excited to be back, as always. Um, today, I, uh, David Hartley, I am joined uh, by the lovely Ethan Lyon. Hello, Ethan. How are you? I'm very well, David. Thank you very much for having me. Good stuff. Uh, just so that the listeners know, uh, Ethan is fresh out of the shower, so he's very fresh today and ready to go. <laughs> Fortunately, he has put his clothes back on, so that's good. Um, that you know and... of, anyway. No, <laughs> and I'm also Christ. joined by uh, Lillian Crawford as well. Hello, Lillian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, David. Pleasure to be here, as always. Good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And we have a, a really special guest with us today. We are very delighted to uh, welcome along uh, somebody who is a friend to, to all of us, but has not been on the podcast as yet. Um, please uh, welcome Sam Ahern. Hello, Sam. How are you? Hello. I'm okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. As I noted, we you know we've all known you for a while, um, but we've we've been quite keen to to get you here onto the podcast, uh, Sam. Uh, I'll just do, sort of do a little brief introduction about you from what I know about you so far. Uh, Sam uh, is a uh, uh, an artist and a creative and is somebody who has um, been involved with the Autism Through Cinema project uh, for quite some time now. Uh, you have been a member of the Neurocultures Collective, which is the collective of autistic uh, creative people who have been helping with uh, Stephen Eastwood in creating or at least sort of working towards creating a new uh, feature film which I believe is still in in, uh, in progress at the moment and uh, yeah so I wonder if you want to just sort of uh, say a little bit more about yourself uh, about the sort of things that you get up to and um, a little bit about the Neurocultures Collective that will be really interesting for us thank you. Hello um, as David has said I'm Sam I'm an artist I mainly work in both illustration, photography, film, and audio. Um, although I'm now mainly working in illustration and in, in this case, film. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of work. Having the best way I can describe it is, I've now, as of 
couple of years ago, suddenly getting quite a lot of commissions just in logo designs and in illustration designs. So that's where quite a lot of my work comes in. But I'm now also uh, working on this film with Stephen Eastwood and the Neurocultures Collective. And we've been chugging away for the last few months, but also for the last sort of three years, we've been doing quite a lot of, I suppose, co-creation and trying to understand what makes good co-creation, co-collaboration and how we can get five autistic creatives to make a film that is both, you know, unique and actually quite fun. So we're having a really nice time just experimenting and getting to grips with what we want to make. But also I think now we're at the stage where, as if I can use the metaphor, we are quite literally putting the tracks um, on the, as the train is coming along. So we're, we're chugging away quite nicely, which is good. Um, and we're slowly getting our heads around scripting and potential casting and what we want to make. So apologies for the vagueness um, of what this is. <laughs> um, because I know that Georgia, who is a fellow friend and fellow presenter of the podcast, is um, all, too, all too aware of what we're, of what we're making. So we're doing, yeah, we're doing some some good stuff, um, and we've got some very good people involved as well. Um, so we're, I'm going to keep that under wraps for now, but we're we're sort of, yeah, it's it's chugging nicely along, so to speak, which is good. That's really good, and we sort of, um, uh, yeah, I've been aware of you guys working away on this thing uh, for quite some time in many ways, but I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that you know, you'll start to make that progress really soon. And then, um, you know, maybe in, in the non too distant future, we can we can talk about the film that you make uh, on here on the podcast. You know, we can have maybe members of the Neurocultures yourself, Georgia and, and others um, to reflect on that on process of the making of that film. Because um, I think that will make for a really, really nice episode of this podcast to sort of tie everything together. It would be really, really lovely. So maybe one day that will happen. Um, but in the meantime... Good luck with it, and I hope it goes. I hope it goes really well. Thank you. Oh, yeah, very I'm, excited to see what it'll be about. Yeah, <laughs> as am I. I'm. Uh, I'm intrigued, and also it's. Yeah, it's now sort of slightly becoming a an actual thing, which is lovely. So we're yeah we're looking forward to it, and uh, hopefully by September, if not October, you will have a finished product, <laughs> which would be really nice. Um, That'd be amazing. But yeah, I don't want to put dates on stuff just yet. Yeah, of course, and we yeah, that's absolutely well. Fingers crossed for it all. Um, I hope it uh, hope it all progresses really well for you and the rest of the Neurocultures gang. And yeah, we're very, we'll all be very excited to see the the yeah, end result of that. Uh, but we have asked you along on on the podcast today. Uh, we were all having a chat a few uh, a couple of months ago, um, and uh, we were at the Autism Through Cinema conference, which took place in in January of of this year, twenty twenty three. And uh, you had, uh, uh, there was a sort of short film that was screened as part of our short film package that you had created, uh, which was a a kind of a clip from E.T., um, which we, uh, well, I think we'll get into the sort of, we'll talk a little bit about what you did with that clip, Mm. I think, once once our discussion continues on a bit more, because I I do want to pick your brains about that in particular. Um, But afterwards, we thought, well, well, it would be really lovely to to invite you on to talk about E.T. um, 
in a bit more depth. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, Sam, if you could give us a, a bit of a sort of, I, I mean, we're assuming hopefully that most people who are listening to this have seen ET at some point, but um, a bit of a brief overview of, of the of the plot, I guess, of ET, and then um, uh, your reasoning for, for being so interested in this film and, and why uh, you maybe have made a kind of a, an autism connection mm. with, with ET. Oh, for those of people who haven't seen the film, um, or for those people who don't know the plot of the film, it's essentially around an alien called E.T. who gets left behind by its uh, group and it has to sort of find comfort, as it were, in a sort of 10-year-old boy called Elliot who's quite lonely. And they, Elliot and his siblings essentially hide E.T. away from his parents and from the government um, and then they, the main purpose of the plot is to essentially get E.T. back to um, their spaceship and to their group as it were um, and so that's essentially the, the plot <laughs> of the film um, in terms of why I chose it oh god oh I've been thinking about why, why why have I chosen this particular film because I think it when I saw it as a child I was completely enraptured by it and I think at some point I very much connected to Elia and I also very much connected to E.T. just both as characters. Um, Elia I saw myself in just as a quite lonely child and E.T. was slightly obvious in terms of you know it's an alien from outer space tries to I suppose fit in with the world around him and whether he succeeds or fails is a different matter but um Essentially, E.T.'s pretty much, I think, thinking about autism, it's the whole film I've realised is about communication in a respect. It's about having to communicate differently or trying to adapt communication um, through what you might not necessarily already know. And I think with E.T., it's very much looking at how he progresses through the film and then essentially sort of becomes, I suppose, I don't want to say a person, but towards the end of the film, he obviously goes back home and that's very heartbreaking. But actually, it's Elliot who really changes over the course of the film and I suppose becomes a better person by putting others forward instead of himself, as it were. So I think for me as a child, really connecting with E.T. and just, I think, falling <laughs> absolutely in love with the, the magic of it all um mm. i think a lot of people when i say it was one of my favorite films there's sort of two reactions there's oh i really like this film or i'm quite scared of this film and i can kind of see why because it is quite a not necessarily dark film but it is et as a character is quite there's a sort of haunting element there as it were you don't see his full face until sort of 20 minutes in um and then only we kind of get this cute little character who then sort of comedically has a bit of a has a sort of comedic jaunt along the way and then we sort of finally realize oh actually it is this brings people together in his own way um so actually i think having yeah et et as a character is quite interesting because he sort of brings peace as it were that sounds quite odd 
that actually that's I think his whole purpose and the world he sort of enters is quite a not a violent world per se but it's a very um tricky world for him to navigate um and so I think that's something and with help of Elliot and Gertie and his siblings he then sort of somehow manages to navigate his way through that if that makes sense so I think a very cobbled together explanation as to why <laughs> why ET um because I think yeah as a child I was very all too aware of trying to sort of fit in and not necessarily succeeding and then having to I suppose take I suppose comfort in siblings or my siblings and having to sort of use them as um not use them but having to sort of get them to teach me various things of neurotypical society as it were um so I think that's something that I found quite quite interesting as it um over this sort of for me as a child especially and now as an adult I think I'm realizing oh the whole yeah the entire film is about communicating and having to sort of find different ways of communicating and trying to adapt if that makes sense um so I think for me that's whether it has a connection on autism is I'm not sure I don't necessarily see ET as an autistic film or as an autistic character uh but I do see sort of sort of I suppose I do have there is an understanding of trying to sort of adapt and fit in as it were into one's surroundings mm. um and so I think that was quite poignant for me as a kid if that makes sense so yeah I could go mm. on um <laughs> <laughs> and we will we will yeah. um that's really, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's, I mean, as is often the case with the with the films that we bring to this podcast, you know, there's not necessarily an immediate or obvious autism connection, uh, but there are certainly uh, resonances and connections and um, uh, ideas that we can sort of uh, bring from either the narrative or the characters that uh, that certainly connect with autistic ideas. And I think you've touched on a few there of this kind of yeah, this need to sort of this process of learning, the process of um, adapting to a different uh, environments and scenarios when you have people of different cognitive wavelengths, I suppose, or different wa uh, different ways of thinking and being. Um, and certainly we'll get that with any kind of alien story, I suppose, mm. but certainly there is, um, there's, there's, there's a lot to be explored, I think, in this, in this film. But anyway, let's open it up um, to our esteemed co-hosts here um you guys uh any thoughts or uh, initial thoughts i suppose on 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 et and its its autistic connection mm. yeah um i mean this is a film that i i i don't remember the first time i saw it because it feels like one of those films that's sort of always been in my life um i must have first seen it when i was very young and i do it's very strange because i haven't seen it for quite a few years maybe not since i was sort of early teens I mean it might even have been earlier than that that I, I last saw the film and in my mind it's always been sort of one of the you know one of the greatest films ever made because I was sort of 
believed in a very sort of Empire Magazine curated canon when I was a child and when I was a teenager um, before I discovered that sight and sound existed and my <laughs> world was opened to um, real films and actual culture. Um, but I think that E.T. sort of has persisted in my mind as something really beautiful, a film which I really loved. And um, yeah, my, my immediate impression watching it as an adult, I think is best summarised in... Um, and Elaine May re- re- reflection on her experience of seeing the film, um, where she went to a screening and she said afterwards, all around me, people are sniffling. And I keep thinking, when is this fucking puppet gonna die? <laughs> and I think that that perfectly captures how I started feeling watching it again as an adult. And I, I don't, I don't think, I don't know, maybe I'm jaded or maybe I just, um, don't be- buy into the puppet as a mm. real creature anymore. I'm not sure yeah. what it is. Um, but I do remember very specifically having this sensory memory of being really disgusted by the start of the film. Um, not the opening scene when we're in the woods, but when we actually sort of go into the house and there's like this lamp with like this mm. sort of smoke over, ha- smoky haze over like some really gross looking boys who are eating <laughs> greasy food. Yeah. And they all shout, and then Elliot starts speaking, and Elliot's voice is one of the most annoying things I have ever heard. It's so shrill. So even watching it now, I was suddenly transported back to being totally overwhelmed by that by that sequence and for just the environment of the yeah. film. It's very dark and very murky for a lot of the film, um, which isn't my memory of it at all. My memory is it being, you know, the sort of soaring in front of the moon and it being really beautiful and John Williams' score. Mm. And I suppose as an adult, I was just so conscious of the ways in which my my emotions were being manipulated. I mean, what that score by Williams is never goes away. There is not a moment sort of respite from it. It's so big and so swelling and there's so much strings. And it's gorgeous. Of course it's gorgeous in many ways. I mean, I do love that music. But it was like, oh, I found might have found this emotional as a child because I was being swept up in that, mm. rather than now as an adult and being able to sort of detach myself from it and going, mm. it's just a puppet. <laughs> it's not. It's not a real creature. Um, so yeah, maybe I'm in a grumpy mood. Maybe I need to rewatch <laughs> this on a day when I'm feeling sort of. Embra- ready to embrace those child those childlike feelings again, but I think watching it, uh, listening to you talking about sort of aspects of communication, is what's really interesting about the film. And yeah. I think that, I mean, I'm not saying that I hate ET now. I haven't gone from saying that this is like one of the best films I've made to one of the worst films I've made. Not at all. I would sort of, it's just gone down in my estimations in terms of sort of my my consciousness of it. But I think it really was those aspects of communication, knowing that we were going to talk about it on the podcast that I found most pertinent, sort of the ways in which E.T. develops very minimal language, which um, sort of we're learning from TV, which reminded me of Life Animated and those those feelings. And sort of I've talked on this podcast a few times about sort of mimicry and um, sort of Disney films and the way that I would sort of imitate them um, as a child. And I think I think that that aspect, that component of the film is really interesting, really worth talking about. I just wanted to sort of say that it was, it was such a strange experience of how, of, of reflection, um, 
that that was I don't know I almost wonder if I wish that I hadn't hadn't rewatched it if I just sort of left it to that <laughs> that childhood memory I don't know I I don't know how um Ethan what Ethan's experience with this this film is my experience is probably the most different uh, of all of yours <laughs> because I never well I never saw this as a child this was never part of um a running joke uh, amongst um Myself and my friends is whenever there are certain films that come up, which I will always say, ah, it's a Lion Family favourite, that one. Now, the reason I mention this is because when I was a kid, uh, the films in our household were dictated by my father, who is a confirmed film nut. And Spielberg, ironically, was one of the directors who kept coming up, but it was never E.T. Mm. It was never any of the family films. It was the Indiana Jones films. Um and so uh, I, I think I've, I've never quite asked him why not E.T., but I get the sense I think he found it deeply sentimental kitsch. And I know that sentimentality is one of my father's least favourite things, uh, which is entirely understandable. Stop sniggering, Crawford. Um, <laughs> so I didn't come to this until I was a fully grown adult. Uh, I think I saw it when I was 16 or 17, when you do that thing when you're first into films where it's, uh, well, you have to watch everything that's seen as great. Uh, and I remember having no emotions towards it in, like, any singular way at all. It was more <laughs> just, uh, I have now seen this film, now I may continue. Rewatching it at the grand old age of 27, there's a... Li there's um, Lillian's, Lillian's uh, anecdote is quite funny. I also felt a little bit like there's apparently a Seinfeld episode where it's about um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character cannot understand why everybody loves the English patient. And there's a scene of her in the scenario going, just die already, just die, <laughs> and it gets everybody really upset with her. To a lesser extent, that was me. Um, I think the thing was, was that because I'm now no longer of an age where I might be more spellbound by it, I can see the mechanics in play. And that's both narratively, of which the, 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 the tactics are very well honed, but also in terms of the, S, of the SFX. A lot of my work recently has involved puppets, dummies, waxworks, dolls. And so E.T. sort of falls weirdly into that format uh, so I had a lot of interest sort of watching him move the, the weirdly graceful elements of his movement, even though he is this waddling little figure. Uh, he's, 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 he is weirdly endearing, and I know he was meant to be endearing, but even he is, he is a triumph of SFX, although I think it's telling that uh, Lillian was talking about it being an overwhelming experience that, I mean, the guttural noises he makes can be incredibly unsettling. And when we consider that the SFX were made by Carlo Rambaldi, who did some of the great horror SFX of the previous decade, uh, there is perhaps more of the uncanny about our little spaceman than we would like to, than perhaps has been previously discussed. But yeah, um, I'm glad that I saw it again with 10 years of life experience behind it if nothing so i could go i can understand why people love this mm. but it's not for me so in that respect thank you very much sam <laughs> i think my, my own relationship <laughs> that's all right um my own relationship with with et um 
I, I mean, I've always been fond of this film. I think I'm similar. I think I watched it, must have watched it when I was a when I was a kid. I, I don't ever remember a, a time pre-ET, I suppose, like you said earlier on, Lillian. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, connected with it in exactly the way that a, a child is supposed to connect with the uh, a Spielberg film from the 80s with John Williams' score, you know, really kind of thought it was wonderful, et cetera, et cetera. Watched it a few times since then. Um, this time round, um, it has been a while since I've watched it last. This time round, I watched it a couple of days ago. I'm currently <coughs> unwell, as you might be able to hear in my voice. I've had COVID for a couple of weeks and um, gone a bit stir-crazy at, at home. So watching this in the context of that was really quite surreal because I was in quite an emotional place anyway. Um, and I was like, well, I'm going to watch E.T. and I'm going to let it tug at all of my heartstrings because I'm so fed up. Um, and it did, you know, it still <laughs> had that effect of making me feel, um, yeah, it gave me this emotional connection. I still felt a lot of love for that strange little creature. Um, but this time around, I think that the, yeah, I, I, I did really see, properly see the kind of the horror movie uh, aesthetic that is that is there. And I think that's a lot of that was stuff that I'd not seen previously or not noticed necessarily. Um, but take, looking at it now with a bit more a focus, yeah, the kind of shadowed figure of, of E.T. in the first few, the first half of the film, really, um, his long sort of Nosferatu-style uh, fingers. Um, and it, there's a creepiness to it, there's a, an uncanniness to it and a, and a weirdness to it. And I still think that E.T. himself is a ugly little monster of a thing and even though it, it the film does a remarkable job really of making us feel for et and it's this kind of kind-heartedness his silliness the fact that he waddles around and gets hit by the fridge and all that kind of stuff is it, it helps to endear us to him but seeing him uh, just sort of just looking at him he's a he's a really ugly disgusting <laughs> creature in an interesting kind of way. And the, the one bit that really got me this time round that really hit me hard, actually, was um, when, um, not Elliot, but Elliot's older brother, um, goes out and to find uh, E.T. after E.T.'s been out overnight and trying to phone home with this device. And Elliot's come back and he's kind of like, Elliot's drenched and he doesn't know where E.T. is. And he goes and finds him and he finds a kind of very grey, withered figure of E.T. just sort of collapsed in a kind of on the sort of river bed or in sort of storm drain bed. And I, I actually gasped this time when I saw that. I was like, oh, my God. Because it was like it, he looked so defeated and vulnerable and, and horrible in that I sort of – and he'd got all his sort of skin had gone grey and, and then, you know, he went, goes down to collect the body. And that, that really that really disturbed me this time for some reason. There was some sort of weird kind of like um, – imagery there of you know a, a body abandoned in a rubbishy bit of the world's kind of and is barely alive so there was something uh, there's something i don't know there was something surprising in, in that moment for me um but yeah but it was certainly interesting to come back to this film and think of it um uh, much more in a context of uh autism and as you said earlier on sam in terms of uh communication I think the one thing that's really I've always found very intriguing about the uh, uh, the most intriguing idea I think that is presented in ET is the connection that ET and Elliot have, um, which is not just a connection. It's not just a friendship. It is literally quite a physical 
um, mimicking or a physical kind of mirroring that they have that whatever E.T. feels, Elliot also feels it as well. And I think that's quite a, it's quite an unusual choice. It's quite a bold choice. And it gives you, gives us a, um, it gives us moments of great intense emotional connection between the two of them, but also moments of humour and, and, and I thought this time when I was watching it, some really surreal scenes. I mean, the scene when Elliot's at home and, uh, no, sorry, Elliot's at school and E.T.'s at home and he's getting drunk, um, all of which I remember loving as a child and thinking it was really funny, but this time around thinking, what a surreal and strange setup and a strange scene to have in the middle of the, yeah. of the film that doesn't mm. really, in a story sense, doesn't really take us anywhere, um, just gives us this kind of ex- fairly extended um yeah, back and forth between the two of them as Elliot does these weird things, releasing frogs and kissing girls and, <laughs> and running around and screaming whilst ET and getting drunk whilst mm. ET's at home watching telly and getting drunk. <laughs> and I thought it was such a such a strange, uh such a strange moment within the film. And I wondered if there was a, a, a something to be sort of thought about there in terms of connection, communication and and different ways of being. Uh, as I always do, I did a bit of research on E.T. Uh, as a project. And what I found was, and I'm certain everyone else has read this here, is the fact that this originally was conceived as a much darker script. Mm, this was yeah. originally a more adult-based drama. Um, apparently a lot more like Signs, of all things, mm. in terms of it sort of being a horror. But the 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 subplot that, of which this came into uh, was about... Um, the the kindest alien befriending a little and it was explicitly apparently autistic child, mm. which I found very very interesting in terms of sort of communication, and I think that Elliot and Et's communication, if I may say, is almost in some respects a perfect one. Not because of what it actually gets up to, which is obviously the uh, the 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 weirdly funny, but yes, it doesn't have any meaning. Um, classroom sequence but it's the fact that they are able to communicate without words they're able to especially Elliot is able to sense E.T.'s emotions directly there's no sense of interpretation it's a one-to-one transference I'm pretty sure is the um the idea behind it and I think there is a sort of a sense of the instant and a sense of the um the very kindred, which I, um, which certainly has an appeal as an autistic person, as somebody who finds communicating emotions and receiving emotions from others quite tricky sometimes. I right. think that there is, there is perhaps a fantasy of, uh, there is a fantasy of ideal communication within Elliot and E.T. And um, I think it's also notable that E.T., <clears throat> we're never quite sure how old E.T. is. We're not mm. given a, a, a sensation, a, a sense of whether he is an adult of his species or a child of his species. Mm. And yet E.T., um, as well as obviously treating everything with a sense of wonder, um, which which goes as given, he, he never condescends to Elliot. There's always a sense of a mutual... Respect, I suppose. It's a sense of mutual exchange and it's a sense of mutual appreciation. So I think there there's a, a strong element of how... I think something that science fiction certainly captures uh, for the autistic person, which is the sense of there being out there an individual 
that thinks and acts in a, a way that makes sense to you. It just may not be that they're from the same planet as you. So I think that's something to consider about communication. Mm. Yeah, and now, sorry, I'm now thinking multiple different things. Um, yeah, Ethan, that's interesting that about the um, almost the original sort of concept of the film was going to be about an explicitly autistic child. Because I think I said to David, uh, this is a long time ago now, the reason, one of the reasons why I quite enjoyed the film was that Elliot has no, as far as we know, has no friends. His peer group is, you know, pretty much his older brother's friends. And when we do see him at school, okay, there's kind of weird context added there because he's technically drunk and he does weird things that have, again, no real meaning to the whole premise of the film. But actually, I do think why some people would potentially connect to that is because, you know, when Elliot has sort of no peers and then there's this, I suppose, alien who comes along. And it's interesting seeing how when Elliot does first meet E.T., he's really engaged with it, um, almost to the point where he will show him all his toys he will sort of show him all the, I suppose, earth things. So I sort of wrote down that they basically teach E.T. about transport, about food, about banks <laughs> in its own sort of, it's almost sort of teaching E.T. to be, not become a human, but be, here are some earth things that you can learn from us. Um, and in return, we can, I don't know, have this bond, whether or not it sustains, um, <laughs> this bond can sort of, almost be what what Elliot gets from E.T., as it were. Um, and I think that's interesting, kind of coming back to that, I suppose, that weird montage in the middle. I almost realised that E.T. in that scene is a bit like a teenager. He sort of just slouches around, watches telly, gets a bit jolly with the alcohol, um, and then just <laughs> sits down and reads comics. But also, he's dressed in a shirt, so they've actually dressed him, mm. not necessarily as a human, but they've sort of, they then put on human clothes mm. for him, which I think is quite interesting, um, because, it, you know, he can't necessarily be human, but if we try and make him as humanly possible, then he can fit in, <laughs> as it were, um, and how... That is the same day that when on the same day he watches telly is the same day he can speak, um, which I think is, I suppose, potentially moving the plot forward. Um, <laughs> but also it's like, ah, OK, he can now talk. So therefore we can verbally communicate instead of sort of, I suppose, doing all this guesswork that kids have to try and do, um, which I do think is is interesting. Um and David, coming back to your point about E.T. being, he is a very, he, he is a very ugly creature. I, I like, and there's an sort of towards the end of the film where it's sort of all these very sort of poignant close-ups. I've written down here, uh, where is it? So for some odd reason, I don't know why this got me, but he's got blue eyes. And I've got in my notes that aliens have blue eyes. And then I thought, why am I trying to understand if aliens have separate eye colours or, or more human eye colours. But I suppose in that respect, 
the sort of making him more, I suppose, cutesy, um, because you know this is the final moment and we've got to we've got to say goodbye now. Um, I'm, there was another thing that I didn't realise was that apparently there was going to be a second film, which I'm so glad they did not do, uh, <laughs> because that would apparently would have involved all the kids going to space um, and going into the ship, which. I think would have been a, a drastically awful film, dare I say it. Um, but you know, I all, all at the same time I don't know because the ship is something I find quite fascinating. It's almost like a greenhouse. It's very dark. It's very wet as an atmosphere. It's almost incredibly, almost fits in with E.T.'s disgusting sort mm. of movements that he does. It's almost like the place that he comes from is suddenly squelchy and quite ooh, gruesome mm. in its own weird way um and so i think that's quite fascinating um that we don't see much of the ship but what we do see is this quite intense environment um that we never actually go back to um so yeah i do think that's yeah i think that's quite yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting thing um yeah there was something else. What was it? Um, what was it? Oh, come back to me. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just going <laughs> to... It's really interesting. I mean, we've all been talking about E.T. as male, and I think that's a really interesting point, um, is is the gendering of E.T. and the way that the different characters sort of connect to E.T. because in Melissa Matheson's script, she's sort of... E.T.'s referred to as the creature, or sometimes as he, um, but of course it's um, E.T. is um, voiced by Pat Welsh, who is a woman, and um, there is of course an extended sequence in the film in which E.T. is wearing a wig and a dress, um, and um, and also imitates Gertie in the Halloween sequence with the sheet, and I just... I, I think that that's interesting. I think there's an interesting gender play within E.T. itself and um, or themselves. Should we go with them? That, that works. Um, so <laughs> they, E.T., um, is sort of, I don't know. It's like when Elliot's communicating with E.T., E.T. is sort of gendered as male because we perhaps see a sort of male response and male connection between, you know, the fact that Elliot sort of struggles to talk to girls, well, is sort of, implicit um is is kind of why that works but then also gertie has this connection with with et which i would suggest is is very much one of sort of early female friendship and feminine um connections and i think gertie's a really fascinating character as well in terms of the mimicry i mean that scene that i'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail but the scene that you used in your in your film is sort of one where she, her her lines are just repeating what everyone has said um and you know, maybe I was watching it thinking about this sort of, uh, this Roald Dahl debacle <laughs> about sort of editing the Roald Dahl books and like the things that Gertie says and mimics that, that, that her brothers are saying is like, um, you know, do we really want to hear a, sm a young girl <laughs> saying such things? Um, it is quite funny, um, especially Drew Barrymore's sort of delivery in, in that scene. And I, I, I think that her connection with E.T. is is perhaps really what watching it this time resonated with me and what you were talking about in terms of like teaching the alien about our world is almost like sometimes how we sort of teach learn as neurodivergent people about 
and the neurotypical world in which we live. I mean, um, Camilla Pang's wonderful book, Explaining Humans, sort of starts off by saying, um, you know, I felt like an alien who had come to this planet and I need I needed someone to give me a guidebook on how to function and this is the book that I'm now writing. Is kind of what those scenes are like. It's like, how do you explain to someone who doesn't just sort of innately get it how things work and how things function. I think the use of toys and figures is really interesting. And the fact that some of those toys are Star Wars figures. Mm. Um, like, Greed, this is you, you're Greedo, and I'm Luke Skywalker, whatever. Um, that that connection is a way of explaining things. And I think that certainly as someone who's very visual in my thinking and my learning, and, I, and I'm sure that um, Ethan, at least you, you are in terms of our connection to film and why we connect to film. And a lot of what we've talked about with this project is that it gives us a means of visualising the world and how we fit in with that world and how the world interacts with us. And I think that in, ter- in, in that moment, there's something really quite powerful and resonant for a neurodivergent person about that form of sort of society learning, I guess. Actually, building on that, firstly, I'd like to say, I think of all the performances in the film, I think Drew Barrymore's is my favourite. I think it's a beautiful performance. I think it's incredibly, for a child of, what, maybe five or six Mm. when she's playing it, she is astonishingly good, and she conveys so much emotion in in the scenes that she has, and her friendship with E.T. is probably, I think, the most touching of all of them. But I think you've also brought, brought up something which is um which I'd like to loop back a little bit to what you said at the start about we're not really sure what gender ET is and how Matheson's script works and how the fact that we see ET in a wig at one point and Elliot goes, Well now you've ruined him. <laughs> he looks ridiculous which I think is a which I think is a very telling, telling mm. scene. Mm. But I think it also comes to mind that that concept of neurodivergence in terms of we are outsiders and I'm using the we here to 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 perhaps encompass not only everybody within this, uh, the people within the school, but also just the general uh, listenership, uh, outsiders to the social sphere. And as a result, we have less stake in the uh, social and um, political more uh, mores that our sort of neurotypical fellows do so it does mean that we are we expect we explore things like gender we explore things like uh mm-hmm. perhaps identity perhaps to put it loose to put it very broadly uh, as an outside object it's something from which we can um uh, not play with, but certainly abstract oneself from. I certainly think you can see E.T. in the wig and the and that the, the funny little hat and him waddling around because Gertie has dressed him up, or well, them up rather. <laughs> as yeah, you can. Well, that's the thing. I think the film is. I think the film. I think the discourse around E.T. is so fiercely gendered that you do naturally, yeah, that my natural urge is to, to call them. He. It is quite funny, though. I mean, like, the, the I mean, sort of 
obviously this is pre-gender trouble and Judith Butler, but like the fact yeah. that E.T. is like locked in a closet and then when they come out, they're like, <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah, but also, also yeah. hysterically has no problems with wearing, which is what I was going to say, they yeah. have no problems yeah, with the true. wig and the dress. Quite enjoys it. Yeah. yeah, they're just like, I, I'm just Performing like... Performing gender, take... that's all that's... Yeah. 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 <laughs> Does this mean that E.T. is in fact an icon? Maybe. <laughs> like the Babadook. <laughs> And I'm like, well, to be fair, that they both are unusual-looking creatures. Mm. Um, we've spoken, we've spoken though a little bit about childhood wonder, and I think um, something Sam said, which was that they were going to make a sequel where they all went into the spaceship, or they were, which reminded me of perhaps of my favourite Spielberg sci-fi film, which is Close Encounters, mm. which which is a film I do very strongly resonate with, and I think that's a film. Uh, that's possibly my favourite alien contact film in terms yeah. of the art. And I think it captures something which E.T. captures in a way, which is a sense of optimism. It captures a sense of optimism about the potential for alien human interaction and uh, um, friendship, I suppose, because, and it, and obviously it ends, uh, this, these are huge spoilers, but you should have seen Close Encounters by now. It's 1977, come on. <laughs> um it leaves, obviously, with famously Richard Dreyfus choosing, unlike Elliot, to go into the ship uh, and to fly away. And mm. I think there's perhaps a very interesting conversation to be said there about um, the, uh, the differences of childhood and adulthood in response to this wonderful opportunity that, that, that Elliot is given, which is to... Um, to, to go and explore the universe effectively with his his new uh, best friend. Right. Um, which, again, I think for a number of autistic people, we would absolutely jump at the opportunity to, <laughs> to, to escape the, 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 I won't say the misery of our lives, but certainly the, the complexity of our lives for a newer and exciting experience. Mm. Uh, we haven't even discussed, actually, the fact uh, that the, the presence of Dee Wallace as, as the mother, mm. but I, I don't have much to say on that one. All I will say now before I pass it over is I didn't realise how much J.J. Uh, um, Abrams ripped off the end of E.T. for the end of Super 8. Oh, my, my gosh, yeah. My <laughs> God, it was it's almost shot for shot yep. a it really, rip-off. It really is. I was really quite surprised at how much of a rip-off it was. But I shall move, but I, I shall pass that over to you guys to see what um, what you can make of it. I just wanted to bounce a little bit off um, Close Encounters briefly. I know we're not, not talking about Close Encounters here, but I do. I was also a bit, little bit thinking of Close Encounters. Um, I mean, you can't not because that was the the, the mm. alien film that he made prior to this one, and also the the sequel, the the, the sort of um, the thing that you mentioned earlier on, uh, Ethan, about the kind of that that other film that was going to be um, that was going to feature the autistic boy, which I also was looking into about the, the trivia, that came directly from Close Encounters because it was going to be a sequel to Close Encounters, a horror version of it, apparently. But what's interesting about Close Encounters is that, for me, is very much a film that's also about neurodivergence because the people in that film who become obsessed with the uh, the coming mm. of the aliens uh, become very distant from their families, become very, you know, they're, they're, they're almost their whole mind frame changes. Like Richard Dreyfuss's right. character you know, with the famous mashed potato sculpting scene and then he builds the that huge um the the mountain in, in his in his house and his family move out. You know, there's this kind of a, there's an interesting reflection there on 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 neurodivergence. Perhaps not autism necessarily, but there's certainly um 
the the presence of of the aliens or the coming of the aliens is something that affects people cognitively mentally and 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 makes them act and behave differently in in ways that are seen as unusual or strange and yet they are all vindicated by the end because the 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 aliens do come they do arrive there is a there is a repurpose for it in an interesting kind of way um but yes i mean that's quite interesting and then to sort of draw that line through from that film into et via this this film that wasn't made this film that was going to be called night skies about with this featuring this autistic child and the alien to bring that then through to to et um where the focus becomes not the the adults that were in close encounters but the but much more on the children and the whole thing i mean the whole thing that is noticeable throughout et is the fact that spielberg constantly especially during the well for actually for really for most of the film we we are at this child perspective we we are constantly the the, the filming of it is constantly very uh, sort of low down mm. we've got a lot of kind of shots of sort of the midriff of adults um and the the sort of legs and the, that area rather than um rather than the faces necessarily i mean we get the face of the mother quite often but there are all these sort of shadowy adult figures that we don't see and we're at the kind of child level mm. hip level uh, along a, a lot of the yeah. time which immediately cinematically is putting us in that in that uh perspective as in the, in that space mm. so we which is quite an unusual in some ways it's quite an unusual thing for a, a film to do to put us so visibly particularly within that within that at that particular sort of visual level um which i think was quite a it's quite an innovative um way of of going about things and and maybe then as viewers puts us in that kind of helps us to put us in that childlike mind space which is not to say that it makes us kind of innocent and um and and carefree but it, it instead sort of connects us with that the way of thinking that you th- the way that you think like when mm. you are that age where mm. you're at that level all the time mm. which is something more to do with being a bit more open perhaps to the arrival of a, an alien creature or the magic of that situation rather than being the kind of jaded adult but then what was interesting about watching it this time was that you know the one of the overriding feelings of this film is that almost really kind of that the adults are bad, that mm. the, the shady adults are going to come and they're going to take E.T. Right. E. away and they're yeah. going to hurt him and they're pretty much almost going to kill him and, well, pr- pretty much do, really. And, um, you know, and you, there's that horrible bit uh, when they've got him in the <coughs> sort of on the on the gurneys and the, Elliot's there and he's sort of screaming and he's like, get off him, get off him, you're hurting him, you're hurting him, etc., etc. But this time around, it what was quite interesting was that maybe this is me as a jaded adult, I don't know, was that once we got to that point, I actually was looking at these adult characters who we suddenly can now see the faces of, and a lot of them are medics and doctors, and they're working on ET, and they they actually are trying to help him. They are actually trying to sort of revive right. him, and they are trying to be the they're maybe going about it in a quite a clumsy way, and maybe a, a not you know, they are dismissing Elliot and his point of view and to a certain extent, but there's actually, they're not like completely uncaring bunch of adults. They are trying to deal with the situation. And it did make me think, yeah, you know, if this happens, if an alien arrives, there is a a, a real problem in terms of like contamination and and, like, we don't know, you know, these things would have to be sort of sealed off and handled Mm. very carefully. And this 
lovely, beautiful, childlike attitude of like, oh, the aliens are our friends, it's absolutely fine, is is not a, a realistic thing. Um, so I just found it quite interesting this time, whereas I, previously, I think when I've been watching this, I've always thought, no, leave E.T. alone, let him run free with Elliot, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, whereas this time I was in much more of a kind of, maybe of a kind of post-pandemic uh, mm. vibe of like, no, we have to be very careful here. <laughs> do you, Ethan, sorry, do you mind if I say something? Or Yeah, no, please go ahead. Okay. I think but yours is probably more uh, useful to the conversation then. No, it's all right. It's, 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 I'm just, I'm just think that that's really interesting in terms of um, sort of a child's perspective of adult behaviours and mm. um, yeah. the sort of detachment that we have as children and being told, like, you'll understand this when you're older, which I, do, I think that Elliot really has a sort of disconnect from. And permit me to sort of psychoanalyse Mr Spielberg for a moment or two. But, um, I mean, The Fablemans is essentially um, his r- remake of E.T., really, yeah. except this time he's actually sort of facing up to himself rather than trying to sort of translate it into this story about an alien. I mean, it's about, the story is about a divorce, and you mentioned uh, Ethan about Dee Wallace as the mother. Oh. And the, his sort of almost disapproval of his mother. I mean, the way that she behaves in this film and her sort of behave, um, like the scene when they dress up in the costumes in E.T. and she's like freaking out and taking yeah. pictures and she's dressed in that this awful like leopard print <laughs> thing. Um, there is a sort of judgment on her from Spielberg of her behavior and her sort of morals, which is really sort of the driving force of the Fablemans and the way that um, the sort of Spielberg stand-in child is like judging his mother for her behaviour, carrying on with her dad's friend and um, dancing in front of the car. With I mean, if people haven't seen The Fablemans, it's about the sort of um, <clears throat> the divorce of um, Spielberg's parents. Um, but this is something that he sort of seems to have shied away from throughout his career. I mean, Close Encounters is sort of a part of that, but all of his films seem to be about not really getting other human beings and connecting with a non-human entity. Um, AI mm. is my favourite Spielberg film. I think that AI really does that in a very interesting way where the child is actually sort of the non-human character within um, that film. But there's also other non-human characters that he connects with throughout the narrative in that film. Um, I mean, even something like Warhorse or the BFG, why are these books resonating with Mr. Spielberg? It's because he, he sort of c- can get that there might be a greater connection to a giant or a horse or whatever from a human than perhaps he feels with other humans. And I think the way that what's really great about The Fablemans, by contrast to E.T., is that he engages with the fact that cinema has become the way in which he can communicate with other people. You know, he, he gets the girls, I mean, but hilarious sort of stories about Spielberg not having any women <laughs> in his mm. youth because uh, which he sort of made up for the film um, as, as a teenager. But the fact that he sort of makes friends, he connects with his parents and other people by making films and telling stories rather than holding a conversation or being able to sort of just fit in into this, into sort of a more neurotypical um, friendship group. Um, I think he's really interesting and, and E.T. is very much a part of that. And may, maybe it's because I've seen The Fableman so recently because it's just come out. I do actually feel like watching E.T. is sort of him not quite engaging with himself, whereas this film, I think, is more successful in in doing that. Um, yeah. I, 
if we talk about people engaging with inart- uh, inanimate objects, what does the Fableman's, if not a man engaging with a camera, <laughs> nothing and not much else? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've also seen the Fableman's recently and was quite jaundiced about it, but that's a, for, for a different day. The one thing I do want to mention, we were talking about adults and sort of an inability to look at an adult behaviour. I'd qualify that by saying that there's a certain number of Spielberg films where it's about adults acting like children mm. in some way or adults that have childlike qualities that do <clears throat> create a certain... That, that, that either feel the most authentic or certainly feel the most... Fleshed, well, not fleshed out, but certainly the most um, sympathetic, perhaps, in the Spielberg canon. One is actually in um, E.T., and it's Peter Coyote's um, FBI man, Keys, mm. uh, which is his name in the credits because we only ever see him jingling his keys. Uh, Peter Coyote, perhaps the only person ever to appear in a blockbuster Steven Spielberg film and the worst uh, Pedro Almodovar film. Um the, the point of the matter is, is that he very early on says, um, well, he says at one point, I've been waiting for this moment since I was 10 years old. Mm. Uh, and there's a very, and he is the only one of the um, FBI lot to be at the uh, the disembarkation when uh, E.T. flies off into space. And I think that's quite telling, is that he is the most sympathetic of the adults because A, he's given the most screen time. B, he genuinely cares about Elliot and he cares about Elliot's condition. And he's not entirely unsympathetic to E.T., I think. I think he realize, I think you can argue that his character, when he touches E.T.'s hand through the through, through the um through the sheeting, he begins to suddenly realise that this is not just a childhood obsession anymore. This is a living, breathing organism. He makes a connection, which I think is tremendously important and probably is part of the reason why uh they are allowed to get away at the end, is because uh Coyote's character is perhaps more sympathetic than his position would let him. Other films in that sort of vein that come to mind, though I've not seen it, uh, Hook. Mm. Oh, definitely. Which is obviously about um, an adult Peter Pan. I'd argue something like Kick the Can in uh, the Twilight Zone series, that he, uh, the Twilight Zone film, his section in that, perhaps falls into that category as well. It's a little bit trickier to identify that in the more recent ones, where his style becomes a lot less... Well, shall we say family orientated and certainly becomes a little bit more prestige orientated, I think, and it becomes increasingly about um serious subjects. Perhaps the most re- the other big one that comes to mind is Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Uh who who effectively achieves the child the, the boyhood dream. Um and uh, a very nice ring there to the fact that Attenborough's brother obviously is David Attenborough, who grew up loving fossils. So I think there's a I think there's perhaps a scent I think there's perhaps something there in terms of Spielberg, which is that he isn't able to understand uh, sort of adult interactions, but he's able to understand adults who act like children uh, or have a child childlike quality to them. Whether we can perhaps link that to a sense of autism, either within Spielberg himself, although that's a dangerous route to go down, or as a general neurodivergent aesthetic. Right. That's a different matter. Mm, yeah, I agree. And I think that, that that really those endings is really about change. I mean, the fact, you know, Peter Pan sort of leaving Neverland and going back mm. to Neverland, Jurassic Park. I mean, I remember watching Jurassic Park 
I loved Jurassic Park as a child. Mm. And I always remember sort of laughing and being like, why the hell, what is Richard Attenborough doing at the end of this film when he's sort of, and they're about to get on the helicopters to leave. And he sort of turns back and, and Laura Dern has to sort of like force him onto the helicopter. And I was like, mum, why is he like, why is he not just getting on the helicopter? And she's like, oh, because he's like, he's sad. He's going to lose his, what he's built and what he's droned off. And I think that that's what the ending of E.T. is about. It's about this mm. this radical change that's happened in their lives and suddenly it's going to change again. And that's a huge thing. And that's just, that's part of getting older. And obviously it's a metaphor for the fact that his parents have broken up and where something that you've sort of had your whole life and you haven't known any other way and then you don't understand why everything's changing, to me feels like, I mean, obviously that's that's also a neurotypical um, fear, but it's particularly heightened for autistic people, um, and I, I, yeah, I think that's that's consistent for, again throughout Spielberg's films. I think that his parents' divorce clearly had a very profound impact on him, um, that made him have a very different perspective on the world, and his films are sort of almost ways of unpacking that and trying to understand it. Um, yeah. Sam, I just wanted to um, to bring this round to what we sort of hinted at and turned, talked about earlier on, which was this um, uh, adaptation that you did of the of a particular scene from ET. So, just to place this in context, this was shown as part of our uh, sh- uh, short films uh, uh, sort of section of our conference that we had in, in January. And in this bit, uh, you had taken um, the dinner scene, what was what we called the dinner scene from quite early on in in the film, which is shortly after Elliot has first seen um, ET, and he's trying to sort of convince his mum and his siblings that he'd that he's seen something. Um, he was referring to it at that point as a goblin. Um, and uh, what you did is you took this this particular scene, and. Uh, you sort of uh, had it playing so that all of the characters, except for one character around the the, the dinner, were speaking in Spanish. I believe it was. Um, oh no, it wasn't Spanish. Sorry. Well, you you can fill us in in a minute. And one was just speaking in English. And then you would repeat the scene uh, four times so that each character, so that it was a different character each time who was doing the English speaking. I'd like to ask you a, a bit about. Um, why create this? Where did, where did this come from? And um, and what were you? Uh, what I guess what, what were you trying to sort of explore during this um, during this creation? And was it what was it? Wasn't Spanish? What was it? Was it Italian? It was Italian. Yeah. Um, oh boy, how do I? Uh, <laughs> this is going back quite a few years. Um, so I, I suppose I created this piece in my first year of uni at art school. Um, and I think the best way I can describe this was because I'd seen ET so many times and because I could practically quote it and visualise it, I think I wanted to sort of put myself, I don't know why, I think I wanted to sort of see a film in a different language and see how that changed mm. the context of it. Or it was sort of a, a weird thing for me to see if I still necessarily understood the plot of the film. Don't ask. Yeah, it's a very odd thing for me to do. Um, And so I watched it in Dutch, which was the only only language that I could watch it on on the DVD that I had. And it was quite a slow-paced film. 
and then I watched it in Italian and I don't know whether it was because of the language difference but the, the entire film was quite uh it was a very different <laughs> it went at quite a very different pace and I don't know if that's because of the way that the actors were speaking um but I found that quite fascinating watching a film in a different language obviously um with the subtitles even though I knew what was coming um but for me I sort of what did I want to explore? I don't really know what I wanted to explore. I think I had tried to get a couple of people in my course to sort of think of something that they knew really, really well and sort of try and subvert it in a way and see how that changed, how that changed, as opposed to the, the context of it. And with me, that was ET. I'd seen it so many times I could quote it and reference it. And this dinner scene in particular, I think, I remember watching it at the cinema with my family and my younger sister, who was all of about three, um, was sort of saying, why are we watching a really boring scene at dinner? Because nothing's happening. They're just talking and eating. Um, and I suppose because <laughs> at the time it wasn't an action orientated scene, it was a very mellow scene. Um, that for me, I found that quite interesting. And I, I think the suppose a the concept of dinner is quite an odd thing for me just because food but also having to chat around the dinner table is quite a can be quite a tricky thing um especially if you're not necessarily especially if you're having to focus on various different things so for me it was trying to i suppose not necessarily get my Peers to understand what eating and talking at the same time is like, but showing them, oh, okay, well, if I was to sit here and just to sort of speak at you in a different language, you wouldn't have a clue what I was saying because it wouldn't, you know, it, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, and I suppose subverting each of the characters, um, all sort of set, speaking in English and then the rest of them speak in Italian, I suppose it is quite tricky to understand or to try and wrap your head around what is quite a, quite a simple scene in terms of they're all just sitting there having dinner trying to discuss whether or not if we capture this thing albeit an alien or whatever then this is what we're going to do and then of course you've got the siblings trying to sort of take the mickey out of well is it a is it a wolf what is it is it is it this is it that um and clearly Elliot getting quite aggravated <laughs> by all these jibes that his siblings are doing um and i suppose him not necessarily getting i suppose mm -hmm. at the end he snaps he snaps quite forcefully and quite bluntly and just says you know you don't necessarily understand the whole context of this until you've seen it as it were um so i suppose for me that was quite a big thing having to mm -hmm. try and explain i suppose having to sit down and talk to people is difficult enough but then doing it with food is another is another thing in its entirety um and trying to focus on food and conversation is quite a tricky thing but i remember when i showed it the first time quite a few of my peers came up to me afterwards and they were sort of saying you've really hit the nail on the head on how i feel i communicate just genuinely even though they weren't necessarily autistic or neurodivergent there was a sense of 
understanding this is what it's like to sit at a table <laughs> and try and converse whether successfully or not um so i think that was quite a that was sort of a big thing for me um why italian you can probably ask because that was the <laughs> only language i could find on uh youtube that i could <laughs> um mix and match um so i i do think that's quite uh yeah that that's that's why italian essentially because it's the only language i could find um doing it um so yeah it does it it's a bit of an odd mm. sort of four minute skit um and it is quite yeah it is quite tricky to for people to understand what what they're talking about i mean i've seen it so many times so i know what what is being said um and i now know italian for penis breath which is lovely um <laughs> not that <laughs> not that i will ever use it i was going to say it was in the central part of the italian <laughs> rhetoric surely. Yeah, it does yeah. have a humorous <laughs> aspect as well yeah. and i think that absurdity um mm. is really important and sort of the humor that <laughs> the humour that a lot that we find as autistic people often is is sort of the absurdity of other people's conversations and I, I, and how they sound to us. Yeah. And I think that yeah, I mean, watching the 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 film was was fantastic, um, and it was really funny watching ET again and thinking about that scene. Yeah, um, was one was really really wonderful. Yeah, um, and you know, as I touched on at the start of the film, that's a scene that I find really hard to watch. I find if it, mm. people eating in films absolutely impossible. I mean, there's there's a yeah. lot of talk about sort of the connections between eating disorders and um, autism, which I find very interesting particularly in relation to to myself and sort of the absolute like sensory nightmare that is eating and food and other people eating food um and even myself eating food mm. that that can be really hard to navigate and i think that that's it, that when that's coupled as you say by like having to communicate having to talk around a table having to sort of mask while dealing with all of that sensory stuff it can be completely unbearable um and i think that being in restaurants and being at the dinner table is absolutely one of the most sort of overwhelming moments for me i um i i like being an adult and being able to eat on my own that's nice um <laughs> and i can sort of manage the environment in which um that's that's happening because if you can't then it can be it can be really distressing and i think that all of those things really come out in 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 the way that you've manipulated um that scene it's it's really wonderful mm, mm. well thank you first and foremost i do think as well um sort of eating is yeah it's own it's own tricky thing but also how i, I find that scene quite fascinating because it's supposed to be a normal family dinner mm. and they're trying to converse in quite a sort of okay what are you doing for halloween how are you finding blah 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 and then they suddenly cut to quite an absurd conversation which is talking about a being that's come down and that you know is elliot going mad what's happening here and then it cuts back to oh well dad would believe me and then we're suddenly in yeah oh okay this is actually quite a tricky thing because the kids are having to sort of talk about quite grown up things that you know they might not necessarily understand and actually we've sort of spoken about this over the past hour or so which is i suppose 
adults having childlike qualities, but then also kids having to try and be adult-like as well. Mm. What they're talking about is quite an unusual situation. But actually, I think Elliot's trying to sort of take this all on his shoulders as best he can. And in the end, he does completely snap. He does kind of say, well, what I'm saying is true. But actually, both Gertie and Michael are just like, oh, well, that's fine. We'll believe it until we see it. Mm. Um, And then it goes back to the very domesticated family scene, which is, you know, why are they why are they all there around that table? They then talk about who's set the dishes, who's cleared the dishes, mm. and I, I I love that. That's sort of not what I added into the film, but that little snippet I just find quite beautiful because it is. We then quickly cut back to that family setting where oh okay we can't talk about this anymore because we've got to get stuff done, mm. um, which I just find quite quite beautiful. Um, but yeah, just that that sensory, I suppose, element of eating and conversing and trying to navigate all of that and trying to navigate, I suppose, the A, the normality of it and B, the absurdity of it all at once um, is quite, <laughs> quite tricky. Um, and I suppose that's sort of something that I was quite fascinated about that I wanted to, I suppose, explore with this. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think you do a really good job of exploring that. And um, uh, yeah, I thought it was such a, a such a neat way of sort of exploring both the bewildering nature of multiple sensory, but also conversational input that's coming in all the, amongst these four characters at that point. Um, and then, you know, sort of complicating that even further by having them each sort of be talking in Italian and then having a repetition four times. Um, yeah, gave that little scene such a, such a, such an interesting kind of neurodivergent charge. And it, I mean, especially at the very start of it, when it's, it's Elliot that's speaking English and everyone else is speaking in Italian to him. And there's this kind of like bombardment of just like language that he, that perhaps we don't understand unless we speak Italian. And there's this, just this real sense of just like chaos. It's uh, yeah, it worked really well. It was fascinating. And it is really interesting to think of that scene as, as doing so much narrative work, actually. Um, yeah, the, the Halloween and the absent father and the domestic scene and the presence of E.T. and uh, the dynamic between them all and so on. And yeah, really interesting. Yeah, um, I'm conscious that we have been talking for quite a, quite a while. Um, so I guess uh, it, we should really sort of bring it towards a close, really. But I, I, I guess... Um, I suppose I'd like to ask anyone have any final uh, comments or thoughts that they'd like to sort of uh, throw in there before we before we bring things to an end. <laughs> no, you're all shaking your head at me. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Then we will we will we will bring it to a close there. Then. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to uh, to Ethan and Lillian as always, but particular special thank you to you, Sam, uh, for bringing ET along. T- for us and suggesting that we watch it for this podcast and also for um, talking about the Neurocultures Collective and your own uh, work with that particular scene from E.T. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, right. Well, we'll bring it to a close there then. And uh, no doubt we'll be back again very soon with another film, another discussion around another a film. Uh, but in the meantime, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.